May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? This conversation takes place more than halfway through Matthew's gospel account, by which time you'd imagine the disciples would have a pretty good idea of the impression Jesus was making on the people he encountered. And yes, indeed they do. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. People seem to think you're a prophet, Jesus, maybe one of the well-known big league prophets sent back into the world, or maybe that latter-day prophet John the Baptist. I mean, word was that John had died in Herod's prison, but... Some of the people think, maybe not. Maybe you're John. Now, to identify Jesus with the prophets was no small thing. Prophets were the ones who had spoken the truth of God into the life of a compromised nation. They critiqued hollow religious practice. They challenged kings to exercise right authority. They called ordinary people back to first things. Prophets were risky figures, in other words, respected and revered by some, reviled by those in power who had the most to lose. Who do people say the Son of Man is? It's interesting that Jesus chooses to ask his disciples this question at this particular location in their rambling journeys. Caesarea Philippi was in the far north of the land of Israel, a good two days walk from home country by the Sea of Galilee, well outside of the disciples' familiar world. It was even further from Jerusalem, beyond the borders of the jurisdiction of King Herod. It's a politically loaded question, you see, and so one is perhaps best to ask it far from the center of their political world. It's a politically loaded conversation that they have about to get even more loaded. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Fine that the people are saying I'm a prophet. That's risky business. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered him, You are the Messiah, son of the living God. It's an extraordinarily bold statement for anyone to have made about a living human person. You are the anointed one, the Christos the one for whom the nation has been longing. You're God's instrument in the world, in other words, by which Israel will be freed from the oppressive Roman rule and elevated as a new, to a new status as God's people. Very politically risky thing to say. As N.T. Wright puts it, what Peter and the others were saying was, You are the true king. 
You're the one Israel's been waiting for, the one of whom the Psalms and prophets had spoken. And then Wright continues, they knew it was risky. With this, they were not only signing on to be part of a prophetic movement that challenged existing authorities in God's name, they were signing on for a royal challenge. Jesus was the true king. That meant that Herod and even faraway Caesar had better look out. As for the temple authorities, well, it's heady stuff, particularly for this little group of Galilean followers. If they really do believe that that's what's being put in motion through Jesus, then it would be easy for them to begin to dream of themselves moving into positions of prominence and power to sit at the right hand and the left hand side of Jesus in, in his kingdom, as some of them will later ask. Herod isn't king, Jesus is. Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is. And we're all part of it. Any wonder that this passage concludes by saying that Jesus sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was Messiah? I mean, he knows that their understanding of his messiahship is incredibly thin. I mean, they're thinking power and privilege. They want good seats in the throne room. And those dreams of power and prestige are going to surface in their lives as it unfolds. He knows, in other words, that at that point when they say, you're the Christ, they're a bit like a group of kids set free in a chemistry lab where they'll quite happily mix glycerol with nitric acid and give it a good shake. It's going to explode if it's left in their hands. Of course, before he tells them to keep their mouths shut about his identity, before he puts the brakes on to keep them from spreading wrong-headed, power-based messages about who and what he is, he actually says some pretty potent things to Simon Peter about the rightness of his answer. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Blessed are you. You clearly couldn't figure this out on your own. Blessed are you. This answer could only have come to you from God. Blessed are you, Simon Peter. And then Jesus does something that happens at other key moments in the long arc of the biblical narrative. He renames him. No longer Simon, son of John, but now Peter. I tell you, you are Peter, Jesus says to Simon. In Greek, Petros, literally the rock. You're solid, Simon. You're going to be foundational in the formation of the future to which God is drawing this whole movement. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will build my ecclesia. That's the word in Greek. Which means assembly, gathering, sometimes council, but, but assembly of people which is a little bit different from 
church. I mean, it's translated, Ecclesia gets translated as church. But when we hear the word church, we tend to think of like this, right? We tend to think of institutions and denominational identities, buildings, budgets, and even bishops. Yes, the ministry of bishops as overseers is there in the New Testament. And yes, our buildings, this one, our traditions, even our budgets can serve us all very well. But they are, for the most part, the paraphernalia of religion to be held and treasured only so long as they serve to build up what really counts, which is the ecclesia or the gathering of God. So think in terms of, on this rock I will build my people. Think, in other words, in terms of the sort of picture Paul offers in his epistle to the Romans, where he writes, For as in one body there are many members... Not all members have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ. Individually, we are members one of another. We are all connected. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And then he goes on to list some of those possible gifts. Prophecy in proportion to faith. Ministry in ministering. The teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. He could continue the list endlessly because the gifts differing are as many as this group gathered here and well more. A people with gifts differing who by way of some very basic things word and story, bread and wine, the waters of baptism, are made into one body. That's the church or the ecclesia in the sense that Jesus is speaking here in Matthew. People, gifts differing, bound together by the most essential of things. Then Jesus says one further thing to Peter, which can seem such a puzzling thing. I don't know if you caught it as it was being read aloud. Having renamed him as the rock, Jesus says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, for about 2,000 years, Theologians and biblical scholars have spilled rivers of ink, wrestling with those words. And frankly, there is anything but consensus as to their meaning, as to the reach of that statement that gives to Peter that kind of authority. This much, though, we can say. Jesus was not saying that Peter was suddenly so rock-like as to be without flaw or beyond error. In the very next episode, in fact, Jesus will rebuke Peter the Rock for his total misunderstanding, going so far as to call him a Satan or an adversary. Of course, on the night of Jesus' arrest, we'll find the Rock trembling in fear. 
denying his friendship with Jesus. And as the early church finds its way forward, Peter, the rock, will be challenged by Paul because Peter has waffled badly on the matter of full, hospitable inclusion of the Gentiles. So no, Peter's judgments are not in that sense declared infallible or without error, nor are the judgments of any who have followed him. Perhaps what the New Testament scholar Eric Barreto writes is most helpful when he remarks that the telling thing, quote, is the power that comes in the wake of confessing Jesus as Messiah. That's the notable thing. The power that comes in the wake of confessing Jesus as Messiah and living into this world-changing reality. A synchronicity or a, an absolute connectedness emerges between what happens here on earth and what happens in the heavens. There is power in faith, a power that resonates into the highest heavens. That at least we can say. Or as Jacob famously discovered in his dream vision of a stairway connecting the heavens and the earth, there is a steady and ongoing connection between the stuff of earth and the stuff of heaven. And what we do here through faith in the, in the name of Christ is very, very real indeed. It resonates to the highest heavens. Well, when Peter first uttered those words, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he knew he was saying something terribly risky, something politically subversive. He knew he was saying, Jesus is king, Herod is not. Jesus is Christos. Caesar is not. And while the politics didn't work out in the way that they expected, they expected great military triumph, a reclaiming of the city of Jerusalem, and the literal enthronement of Jesus in a royal household in the city of Jerusalem. Even though none of that came to be, it remained deeply political all the same. It still is. To be the true ecclesia, the true gathered people of Jesus, is to be challenged again and again to cut against the grain of systems and structures and social conventions that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. To be the true ecclesia of Jesus is to put us as his people at a right angle to much of what the wider society sees as right or justifiable and to have to work to keep ourselves from being too easily co-opted. Things like the deep racism that has recently shattered the community of Ferguson, Missouri, or closer to home, the tragic social dis-ease that this past week left Tina Fontaine's 15-year-old body in the Red River. Now, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not saying, therefore, we have to go and march against child and family services for failing. 
or over to the legislature and march against the legislature for somehow failing. Nor do we point fingers at a troubled family that she came from. Nor do we don't point fingers at anybody in that blaming way. What we do is we say, that little girl's body drowned in the Red River is heartbreaking to God. And as the people of God, our hearts need to be broken by that story. Let your cries against such things, such tragedies, such brokenness ring out to the highest heavens. Or more rightly, let our cries ring out. Because we are meant to be a people together, an ecclesia. We are meant to be one body with gifts differing, animated by a kind of politic that says, what breaks God's heart must break ours. That's what it means to follow the Anointed One. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.